Meritocracy is at the heart of what it means to be American. You've heard me say it many times. We need to put the merit back into America. That's why I'm a chief proponent of eliminating affirmative action in America. That's something that a U.S. president can do. I think that when it comes to college admissions, that's something that the Supreme Court is likely to do later this year. And I think that's going to be a good thing for the country where people know when they look to their left and look to their right in a college classroom, for that matter, in the workplace, that they know the person who got that seat got it because they were the best person for that job, the best person for that spot without, say, race-based preferences entering into that game. And so that's something that's near and dear to my heart. I intend to end race-based affirmative action, and that's part of a pro-merit campaign in America. But race-based affirmative action isn't the only impediment to merit in America either. We have corruption in every one of our institutions, starting with the federal government, by the way, civil service protections that say you can't be fired even if you're doing a bad job. You know what? If you can't fire somebody, that means they don't work for you. It actually means you work for them. It's anti-meritocratic where the people who we elect to run the government don't run the government. Anti-meritocratic strains pervade American life. But there's one area where we've seen the rise of an anti-meritocratic cancer too and rise of a certain form of corruption that nobody else had really taken on in quite the way that my guest today had in his tenure as a prosecutor. I'm joined today by Andrew Lelling, who was the main person, the U.S. attorney out of Boston, who led actually the national case. We'll talk about why it is that he had jurisdiction to do it nationally, but led the national purge of a corrupt system of determining who actually gets into college and who doesn't. And yes, there is corruption in the race-based admissions policies. I've talked about that maybe even endlessly in other settings. But today, we're actually going to focus not on the race-based affirmative action cancer, but on the insider rigging of a system that determines who actually gets to make it into America's most elite ranks, starting with our universities, and what we can do to actually stop it. And we'll also take some counterarguments to whether or not this should be prosecuted legally versus pursued in other ways. But that's going to be the first of several topics we cover from there to actually the fentanyl crisis, something else he knows well as a prosecutor. I'm excited to dig into the discussion and joined here in Columbus by Andrew Lelly. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'm excited to uh, to dig into a topic I know you've talked a lot about oh, yeah. uh, at length, but I think it's an important topic to get into through the lens that I care about, which is restoring merit in America. You know, it's been a little bit since the case actually played out and some of them are still playing out. You know, just talk a little bit about what the factual backdrop was here for these cases. And then on a first personal level, why it is you took an interest in it when really any prosecutor across the country could have. You're the person who took the football and ran with this. Why did you do it? Why did you prioritize this according uh, relative to the range of other things you could have been pursuing? Why was this important? And I think that relates to the facts. So I'd ask you to lay out both. Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. Basically, what happened here is um, uh, this guy named Rick Singer, who used to himself be an assistant basketball coach on the college level, decided to set up a scam where he would, on the one hand, uh, bribe college coaches to take students that he identified to them, meaning each college coach uh, in first tier or second tier sports has a number of slots they can play with where they can go to the admissions committee and they can say, hey, this guy's gay, or gal is a great prospect. You should take them. 
So what Rick would do is he would bribe those coaches to use those slots on high school students that he identified. What Rick would do is he would go to parents and he would advertise himself as a college counselor who could get their kid into a given university, guaranteed. And parents would sign up. But he would charge inordinate amounts of money for this. And so, for example, he, so would, he would say- So he would market it as a guarantee. He would market it as a guarantee. And what he would do is he would say to wealthy parents, look, if you wanted to guarantee your child's admission the old-fashioned way, you'd have to give that elite college $10 million. A million dollars isn't going to do it anymore. It has to be about $10 million. I'll only charge you about two hundred and fifty grand. That's all it takes. You give it to me, I'll make sure your son or daughter gets in. And what he's doing, like any good fraudster, is finding a sector of the economy where the customer base is um, emotionally driven. And he's tapping into that ongoing fear uh, across America that parents have that their kids won't get into a name brand university. So he was wildly successful. He probably brought in about $25 million over the course of the 10 years or so that he pursued this scam. Um, and he would, one, he would guarantee admission to, the, to a university. What he would also do in a side scam is he would help your child cheat on the SAT. So he would sell these services to parents who were unscrupulous enough to buy them. What was fascinating about the case and what drove public attention to the case is that when we put the case together over time, what we realized is that the parents who had bought these services for him were, as I said at the press conference, a, a, a veritable catalog of wealth and privilege in the United States. Mm -hmm. Hedge fund titans, Actors. CEOs, yeah. two famous actresses, uh, prominent vineyard owner in Napa. I mean, you had just this mix of uber wealthy people who had signed up for this from many different walks of life. And so, uh, oh, or one of my favorites actually, the managing partner of a global law firm. Someone who in a profession where professional ethics are meat and potatoes for your day-to-day -day job. I, I believe actually, if I'm remembering correctly, now that you bring that fact up, I think one of the leading ESG fund managers, which was about sustainable investing, was ensnared in this, right? Bill McGlashan. Uh, yes. Uh, was, Bill, was the TPG Bill Rise McGlashan, Fund, right? Doug Hodge from PIMCO. Yeah, but, the, but these are guys who, who preach about the importance of yes. exercising virtue through capital markets yes. behaving the other way. Yes. These are practitioners of you know woke capitalism mm -hmm. who in their private lives are pursuing this kind of petty corruption and practitioners of corruption really system. So, so so I am the reason you're here is I'm so interested in what you did and and I think it's I think it's actually really important to have highlighted this strain of anti-meritocratic cancer which actually in some ways provides legitimacy to other cases for affirmative action or otherwise to say, well, if the system's already corrupt, then let's at least at least well, even it out. You're seeing this tremendous disconnect between the perception of the American public and what actually happens in the college admission system. Yeah. Middle America thinks that it is roughly a meritocratic process to get into uh, That's colleges, the myth you're sold. Right? Yeah. That's the myth you're sold. Um, but you have race-based affirmative action, you have legacy admissions, mm -hmm. you have other aspects of the process, and you have just petty corruption, mm -hmm. like what Rick Singer was peddling here. And so this um, case really grabbed the country's attention 
for two reasons. One, approximately 2 million students a year are applying to American universities. So maybe that's 10 million people who have a vested personal interest in their success. Yep. And two, it was so jarring when people see famous actors in the cover of People magazine who bought their kids way into college uh, and the breadth and scope of the scam, it really undermined their confidence in a system that was already teetering on the brink. So, so on this podcast, one of the things we believe, on, believe in is embodying the values of free speech and open debate here. And I know you're an attorney, you're a prosecutor, so you can handle it. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm actually mostly admiring of what you did in exposing this problem, but I want to just put some pressure sure. on some different aspects of this and then, sure. you know, come back at me with respect to counter arguments to the points that I want to make. Because I think it'll be useful for people to, on the other side of it, I think you'll actually persuade people more effectively if you understand some of the objections here. So, so the first of them was, okay, I hear you on the scam artist of of this guy who's putting this together. Actually, I'm going I'm to get to the se separate question in a second about why the parents, but even on the scam artist for a second, what's his name again? Rick Singer. Rick Singer. So usually the way you would think about a scam artist is he's selling something that is false and you dupe the consumer into it. Here, he wasn't really duping the consumer. He was selling them something that was true. And so if it's a scam, who was actually the victim of the scam? It's a great question. That was a controversial point. The consumer is not being duped. The universities are being duped because what would happen here is Rick Singer would work with the student to fabricate an athletic resume. He gives the athletic resume to the coach at the university. The coach knows it's fake. The coach takes that fake athletic resume, goes to the admissions committee and says, this kid is, an, is a phenom water polo player. Mm -hmm. We need to take this. Because kid. he got a bribe on the side though. Right. And the coach, coach is doing get it paid he got personally in his pocket? It varied. Most of them, yes. One of the coaches, the Stanford sailing coach, whose name I forget, didn't take a dime for himself. He actually took the money that was given to him by Rick Singer and put it into the, the Stanford, sailing program. The Stanford program. Right. Also a controversial point in the case because it's still a crime. So he was prosecuted, so but what, obviously what, more what, sympathetic. But why, why, let's, let's just, just because that's more interesting and let's go there. Why, why is that or should that be a crime relative to what you just said at the very beginning, which is everyone knows this. I mean, Stanford or Harvard or anywhere else, you write the $10 million check or maybe after post-inflation, maybe it's 20 now. But you write the check and you get your kid in. It goes yep. to the university's coffer. The university benefits. Kid got in. I don't love it. I think we should end legacy admissions. I think we should end affirmative action. I want to be consistent on that. But I'm just making an argument here. If Why is that okay if the university is the beneficiary here in this Stanford case? The university, an arm of the university, was a beneficiary. Why is that a crime? Because Actually, you're, I you're, you're, defrauding, you're defrauding the school. So... Look at it this way. The admission slot is property of the school. Okay. The school gets to decide what to do with that property. You've now deceived the school into dispersing that property to someone who they otherwise would and not- And who deceived the school? This coach, really? The, the Rick Singer conspiring with the coach to deceive school into believing that student X is an athlete when student X is not an athlete. And so inducing the school to take that student when they would have taken somebody else. There is, there is, a, there is a, a social cost in that you have, it's a zero sum game, as you know. College admissions is a zero sum game, right? 
something we talk about a lot in, in, in race-based uh, right. uh, affirmative action programs. So there's a kid who didn't get that spot. Yeah, there's a social cost broadly, right? So there's no identifiable victim. But I think the nature of the way a case like this is charged would be under laws that presume an identifiable victim, right? And that's the university yes. in this theory. I'm just having a little fun with you wearing my old yeah, legal no, hat but, a little bit. But what you're pointing out, we, these were controversial aspects oh, of, course they of this were. Yeah, case. This is, it's interesting. And this there was a lot of pressure. And, and as you pointed out, there's still litigation going on on some, mm -hmm. of, these, on some of these points. So, uh, so on this, let's just, because there's a couple of these rabbit holes I just want to go down because I think it'll help people understand. This is such an interesting case, but people, you know, went by so fast that the details may have been been missed. Suppose you're Rick Singer and as the fraudster guy, you know, so suppose you're him and that was the only case is the Stanford case. You could say that was the university itself, right? The coach is a representative of the university. So in one case, I talked to the president of the university and I write him a $10 million check to the university and my kid gets in and that's normal course. In the other case, I write a, I don't know how much was $100,000 check or whatever. $250,000. Well, the standard rate. $250,000 check to the, to the university's athletic program and the coach is advertising it to me as such and I get the kid in. What's the difference? The difference is one involves fraud and one does not. Okay. And I got asked about this a lot. I got asked I'm sure about this yeah. right out of the box. None of these are and, new and questions it's, But it's a point worth making because yeah. a lot of people... We're curious about this distinction. If you go to a university and you say, I will give you $10 million and you take my kid, there's nothing illegal about that. What you would hope is that the universities would be transparent about this. And I'll even say, it doesn't strike me as necessarily problemat problematic for a university to say, we will take that deal. That $10 million, that's additional financial aid. That's a new neuroscience lab. That's a lot of ways we can make student life better. Right, so or we'll sailing team student. better, or sailing team better. We'll, though, right? we'll take your ten million bucks, and we'll take your kid who maybe we otherwise wouldn't take. There's no fraud in the um, in the varsity blues context. There's fraud. You are deceiving the school by telling the school this is an athlete, and the the student is not an athlete. There is a fraudulent misrepresentation. So in that Stanford example That's of it, for difference. example, or in, in that example where, where the coach didn't even take this, because the coach takes the side money, okay, there. That's a bribe issue. Um, but in the case where the hard case, right, which you helpfully yeah. brought up, yep. in the hard example, where is the fraud? The fraud is that the only, what happens in that case is parent pays $250,000 to Singer. Singer takes his cut, gives a bribe to the coach, says to the coach, here's the bribe. I need you to take this student who's not really a sailor, but you're going to pretend that this student is a sailor. Okay, oh, it's the pretension that he's a sailor. And, and it, so coach okay. goes to admissions committee and says, this kid's a great sailor. We need him. That's a lie. Admissions committee, thus deceived, agrees to use the slot. So then there's a question of choice of defendant. We'll, we'll get through these early legal questions just because I think they're fun and interesting. I mean, in that case, let's just since we took the trouble of walking through that example, why is Singer the defendant and not the coach who's actually the agent of the university? Coach was. We prosecuted the coach. Okay, you did too. So we prosecuted three levels of defendants in that case. Look at, look at it that way. Rick Singer and his organization, the coaches who conspired with him, and the parents who were the consumers of the fraud. And, and then why were the, I mean, let's just, let's just talk about the parents there. I know a lot of these parents are, they're not particularly sympathetic sure. defendants to, you know, my case, I have no cultural sympathy for them, 
But in the use of the legal system, right, we're talking about people potentially facing jail time for these crimes. Yes. I wear a different hat. It doesn't answer the question of whether I like them or their behaviors or not. The question is whether or not it was unlawful and intended to be the kind of behavior that the laws were intended to put people in the prison on the back of. Suppose they didn't know about the fraudulent nature because the essence of the fraud is a coach lying to the university in yes. conspiracy with this middleman, Rick. Yes. If a parent is just getting a deal to say, I pay $250,000 and my kid gets into college and that's a lot cheaper than paying $10 million, which is the natural other alternative. Like if, if you put yourself in the shoes of that parent, like, I don't like this game one bit. Okay. But suppose you're one of those parents and you say, okay, I could pay $10 million and get my kid into college. Instead, this guy says, I can pay $250,000 and get my kid into college. Why, if the fraud was downstream of them, why does the customer of that service themselves bear criminal liability? They do not unless they were aware or should have been aware of the fraud. Okay. So you, you so have, let's talk about the should have been aware case. You have to be intentionally conspiring. Mm -hmm. you, it has to be willful conduct. Um, if you don't know anything about it, you're not going to be guilty of fraud. And did you fraud. find parents who were clients of Rick who did not know about this? I'll say this. There were uh, potential defendants against whom we did not proceed because we were concerned whether we could prove that they had the sufficient intent. There were those defendants. So in fact, there's one I can think of, a potential target we had, where uh, for that person, English was very much a second language, unclear whether they really understood what Rick Singer was saying to them. We did not proceed. You have to be able to prove at trial that the parent knows that it's going to be a fraud. And there is a, there is a doctrine in the criminal law of deliberate, uh, deliberate, willful blindness or deliberate indifference, deliberate ignorance, not deliberate indifference. Uh, and there's a jury instruction for that. And so you can see scenarios where someone makes sure they are not aware, right? Um, and so we confined ourselves to instances where we could prove that the parents knew that this was not on the up and up. And primarily the way you would do that is Rick speaking in explicit terms with the parent about fabricating the resume. That's usually how this went. And there were some unfortunate instances where the son or daughter was involved in the conversation and yep. in on fabricating the resume, which was too bad to see. You know, it's interesting. I mean, we just get to the philosophy of this a little bit. I think the problem that you exposed is a big problem. I think that seeing a problem even if you don't solve it alone is a service because that helps build trust in institutions that ha have lost the trust of the public and our Amen. university and education system is very high on that One list. One of the rationales for doing this case. Right. Thank you. Which is actually what brings me to a, a philosophical question that I, that I, you know, struggle with actually. And this is, look, US president actually runs the executive branch of the government the Department of Justice, which you're a part of. You stepped down, by the way, as prosecutor when? Or? Yeah, uh, about two years, two at years the ago. At the end of the Trump administration. At the end of the Trump administration. That's a private practice. So, do you understand this? Uh, and I think you have to have a theory as a chief executive here. I struggle with using the judicial system, using the, the justice system to put select individuals here in prison 
as a way of exposing what was a deep rot. The rot needed to be exposed for the longest time it wasn't. Everyone sits by and looks the other direction as this corrupts anti-meritocratic system plays itself out. Mm -hmm. The attack on merit is an attack on the American soul. And so someone needs to do something about it. At the same time, there's a part of me that feels like those parents who, from their experience of it, just think of like an ordinary American, and this goes sure. to the willfulness, were you really yep. willfully blind if everyone knows that you can write a $10 million check to a university and get in, that somebody else comes along and says it can do a $250,000 check and without doing due diligence on it, sort of says, okay, $250,000, fine, I'm just playing the same game and getting a cheaper rate. That there's something about that, not for that Rick guy, and maybe not even for the coaches who knew what they were doing, but for that parent to well, be behind uh, bars you are, as a way of solving that problem. You, you're putting your finger on um, an inherent unfairness in the criminal justice system that we actually readily accept. And I'll tell you what I mean. There are, two, there are two different paradigms here that you're really talking about. In the law enforcement paradigm, one of the reasons why we prosecute people is that other people don't do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So getting stopped for speeding is unfair when the 500 other people who drove by that cop didn't get stopped. Deterrence. This yeah. is like that. Yeah. So uh, there is a general, what we call a general deterrence value to prosecuting Rick and prosecuting these parents and prosecuting the coaches for doing this. So maybe it doesn't happen the next time. Ideally, you wouldn't have to do that. Ideally, there would, you would use a different paradigm. There'd be a regulatory approach, a more legal or legislative approach, something that makes universities um, better at this, which they are now after Varsity Blues, or somehow otherwise programmatically weeds out of the system this kind of corruption without having to make an example of people. Traditionally, that does not work. Traditionally, what has happened is in America, we've done this slightly backwards. And Varsity Blues is a good example. You do the case, it uncovers the problem, you prosecute a bunch of people, and then legislatures pass laws or schools improve their internal procedures. It, it, it tends to mm -hmm. go that way. So, so let's, let's, yeah, I mean, let's talk about the two theories of criminal justice, right? Proper retribution and reform versus deterrence. On the deterrence count, two sub questions there, right? One is, I think everyone is in favor of, or, you know, or whatever we've accepted as a system that we're okay with a cop pulling the one person who runs the red light over, even if every person doesn't get pulled over, and that that person bears a punishment that deters everybody else from doing because there's the possibility the same thing could happen to you. I think that in principle, you could achieve deterrence by then putting a person who runs a red light in for prison for 10 years, makes it definitely less likely that somebody's going to cross a red light, but it's constrained by the justice of that situation too, that there would be something fundamentally unjust well said. about putting someone in prison for those 10 years. And so I think question number one- Portionality is a break on deterrence value. Right, right. And, it, and that relates to my second question, and you, could, you know, I'll put both of them to you together, but one is whether or not the idea of putting that parent in prison was the equivalent of the 10 years for the, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating it, but for, sure. for the red light. And, and then combine that with the fact that even when you're doing it for the person who crosses the red light, you're still deterring the other person who crosses the red light. Whereas the social good that came out of this that you pointed to, universities have begun to reform their behaviors, is a little bit different, right? Because the theory of this case is that the university 
was the victim. And yet the party whose behavior you're reforming is really the party who in the legal theory was the victim. So universities are reforming their behavior for the better. It's better policing. Yeah, it's, it's right. Well, it's better. It's better policing, but by the Within, university. That's what that's what I mean. Right, that's right. which I mean. is different figuratively. Than, yeah, which is different than the deterrence of saying somebody who runs a red light. You don't want other people to run a red light. You punish them. Here, you're saying the police system that's policing people who's running red lights. It's like it's like it's like the traffic light, really, or whatever. You're saying yes. that the person no, runs right. a, runs a red light, punish them, so you fix the traffic light, which is a little bit different. So I guess I wanted you to respond to both of those, well, both the proportionality the, the, the and the indirectness. Second point. The, the second point first. Um, what you're doing is exposing a flaw in a system. And so fixing it requires a few things. There's the university side of the equation. So in light of varsity blues, most universities scrambled to improve their internal compliance procedures so that they would avoid this kind of problem, right? No longer take the coach's word for it that this kid is a great water polo player, but do a little more due diligence. That's good. On the other side of the equation, Maybe we have deterred the consumer population, the parents, a little bit more than they otherwise would be uh, from getting into this sort of behavior. So hopefully it has healthy effects on both sides of the equation. Um, I agree what makes it a little anomalous. What you're not doing is deterring predators like Rick Singer, right? So Rick Singer... Um, may or may not be a deterrable person. Like the, the, the resolute fraudsters, right, in any context, in, in when it comes to securities fraud or the kinds of investment fraud, this kind of fraud, it is questionable whether they can be deterred. But the surrounding systems can be improved so that less of this happens in the future, right? The universities are more on guard. Parents are more afraid to do this kind of thing. And so the ground isn't quite as fertile for this kind of fraud. That's the best you can do, right? Uh, it's not nothing, but it won't guarantee this doesn't happen in the future. To your proportionality point, I'll tell you, there were some days when I was a federal prosecutor where I would have done the job for free because you get paid to wrestle with these amazing issues of legal and moral responsibility that other people just don't get to deal with. And we had that here. So I remember saying to people, um, you remember the marathon bombing. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I had to do toward the end of my tenure was decide whether to recommend to the attorney general, whether we should continue to seek the death penalty for Zokar Sarnayev, the surviving bomber in the marathon bombing. I remember saying to people that was an easier decision at the end of the day than figuring out what to recommend for some of these varsity blues defendants for reasons that you point out. Do these parents really need to go to jail? That was the question. It's a good, especially against the backdrop of we're bringing the case against this guy, Rick. We're bringing the case yes. against the coaches. Against that backdrop on the margin, are we doing the right thing or not by criminally charging the parents who were willfully blind to it? And obviously we concluded, we concluded yes. Yeah. And there's a few things that we thought about. The parents are knowing participants in a federal fraud. And, and are knowing were, or or willfully blind for many of them. Sure, but yeah. it, sure. And, and there was the occasional hard instance where you were thinking about willful blindness, but the majority of them, we Did had know. direct evidence that they knew, right? They're on the phone. We had wiretaps. They're on the phone, the Rick Singer, sort of figuring out what's the best way to position the kid as an athlete when the kid's not an athlete. They're, the, the explicit discussion. They're in on the, the lie. They're in on the lie. Very much in on the lie. And so what do you do with these people? I'm more interested in the hard case because the easy case, you know, Good point. But 
But in the hard case, let's say the willful blindness well, case. Well, the, the, the Stanford sailing coach got no jail time. Okay. Right? The hard case, right? Didn't take the money. It went to the sailing And program. got no jail time. Was that a sentencing matter or was that how you wanted it charged? Or was it settled? Uh, that was- a, Or pled. Uh, he, he, he pled guilty. Uh, he was charged with roughly the same thing everyone else was charged with. Um, but um, we had no issue with him not getting jail time. We, he, we, he pled we, guilty. He pled guilty. And you, and, and, and you guys and, negotiated no jail time. Yeah, exactly. What was his penalty, if anything? Uh, it's a good question. Years, I don't maybe. remember exactly. Well, he was fired. I mean, there are if you're a white collar uh, offender, there are there are serious collateral effects right. to this. Even if there's so. no prison time, uh, right? So he was fired. I forget if there was a fine. Um, he was can on I, probation. Can I just for ask some you a question period. about him? Do, do you think his intentions were maybe, maybe? Did you ever talk to him? No, okay. I did not personally. So maybe harder for you to answer this. Like, do you think that he, as a human being, thought he was doing the right thing for Stanford? No. I don't. I you think don't. based on the evidence in the case. Well, like, let me what, put it this way. These, keep in mind, these two things can coexist. One of the interesting things about, about criminal law. He can, on the one hand, know he's committing a crime, but on the other hand, think that it's good for the school. Of course, of course. And but, I think there was some of that here. But he, here's, here, it's just an interesting question, which is like, if it's not that he's doing good for Stanford's sailing team or rowing team, or what was it? Rowing, say, whatever it was. Sa the sailing matter, team. matter. The sailing uh, team. Sailing team. Fine. Like what was – I mean, it's hard to imagine what else his motive was. Well, my right? guess is that – my guess is that – Like you have to use it as self-interested or some messy. wrong motive. People are messy. My, my guess is that um, he had a few things going on. One, he genuinely wanted help the sailing program. Two, a successful which, – which, which would make for a weird criminal theory against sure, him. Sure, but right? a successful yeah. sailing program also helps him as its coach. And three, I'm guessing – I don't know that he uh, changed horses midstream, perhaps, meaning after having gotten into the situation with Singer, perhaps having originally thought maybe he would take some portion of this money, at the end decided not to take the money, either because he would, thought it was wrong to take it or because he was afraid to take it. So you can never I, know on these technicality, things. let's say the money had been paid directly to the account of the Stanford sailing team rather than via the coach's account and then him you know, trying to fix it backwards. That might have changed the case. Still be bribery. If you bribe me by saying, uh, you do something for me and in exchange, I'll give money to a third party. Not a third party, but the, you, 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 it's, it's like, let's draw the provost. It could be a third party. Yeah. It, it could, could be, be anybody. But the pro, let's say, let's say you're talking to the provost though, is, is the provost is a rep, is representative A of the university is the provost and representative B is a sailing coach. I suppose I'm the parent in this for this play fiction here as parent or, or, or Rick or as a representative of the parent or whatever says provost in return for putting this money in the bank account of Stanford University, I get my kid into college. No fraud there. Totally right. fine. Maybe distasteful, but totally fine. Second case, we have representative B of Stanford University sailing coach and you say for the purpose of getting my kid into Stanford I will put $250,000 in Stanford's sailing account. It is, I have to admit, hard for me to see why that, well, that, that, that could be, be. That could be totally fine. But okay. again, you're forgetting the fraud element. Yeah. 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 Right? What's happening there is Rick Singer saying, uh, Coach, I'm going to give you 50 grand. The parent paid me 250, but I'm going to keep 200 of it. And I'm going to give you, Coach, 50. In exchange, what you're going to do for me is deceive the university into taking this kid. This kid's not a sailor. But you're going to tell the university he is a sailor so that the school takes him. That's what's happening. So, so 
Can I can I go to the other case actually? Um, which is back to the the giving money through the front door is. It does seem. I mean, I, I've been so I went to Harvard. I went to Yale. I, I my parents didn't have money. First generation American, and also I'm not in one of the protected racial categories. So I understand that's what right. The, what you had the, to do it the hard way. Yeah, I mean, I understand what that looks like, and and great. I'm proud of that, and and got more out of the experience because of it, and whatever. But but I also understand how the game is played. Uh, from you know, been through a double dip in this Ivy game, and here's the thing: there is a deception and a fraud at the heart of the other one too, where the university effectively perpetuates, I'm using not a criminal fraud here, but a lowercase f fraud, is the idea that that person who got in was still on a holistic review, every bit as meritorious as somebody else, except for the money. And, and I just ham, and we can leave this soon, but it, but it just seems oh, like I, on that I, hard case, it does seem to me a little bit, and I'm glad that guy didn't do prison time because that would just feel fundamentally unjust to me if he did. But it feels to me that either a parent in that case or that guy, especially if the money found its way to the university's coffers, especially if it went there directly, that that be something that we ought to be putting in people in prison over. And we don't have to agree on this. It's fine. But I just – it's something but I to, to your point, I struggle the, with the, a little bit. The, the, the technically legal situation where a person says, I give school $10 million, you take my kid. My view has always been that while that is not illegal, schools should be required to report it. There should be transparency. But they're not there. today. No, they're not. It's actually very there closed door. I, no, no. It very, very I could, much I could, so. as a student, figure out very who these much kids so. were over right. a couple of years of being so in classes with them. If you had to report it, one, some quantum of parents would be deterred from doing it. And two, the universities would be a little deterred from doing it, right? Because if you do it too much, it looks a little piggish. And this came up in some of the trials in, in the Varsity Blues cases. So while not technically illegal, it does strike me as there's a benefit to, you know, the antiseptic of sunlight, right? It, it, you want to do it, university, Harvard, whatever, fine. But annually, you need to report to the Department of Education or wherever all the deals that you have struck to, uh, to all, all the time, all the donations you have accepted in the same calendar year that a student related to the donor has been admitted to the university. I like that. I like that. That's not something... A prosecutor is able to deliver no, no. either a policymaker or even a university board can make it a norm. very much policy. It doesn't even have to be a government body. No, it could, school, it could, just be it could be a best practice. A best practice, exactly. And, and something, right? that, something that stands for, I mean, Harvard's motto is Veritas Truth. Well, why would truth hide from sunlight, right? So it's a cultural question. Interesting conversation, man. I, I appreciate it. It's a now, great of course, case. Of course, this is not the only case you've prosecuted, uh, to say the least. Actually, actually, I do have a little bit of a transition to some of the other kinds of cases you've dealt with. Just a little bit on the managerial bureaucracy side yep. of this. Who knew that you were going to bring that case before you brought it, the Varsity Blues case? The way that works- Up the chain, I'm talking The about. way that works in a bureaucratic sense is um, when you have a case, uh, quote, of national importance, unquote, you send a report, it's a form, to the deputy attorney general. Just to the deputy attorney general. Just to the deputy attorney general, informing that person <clears throat> of the case. Now, of course, it's an interesting game within the bureaucracy of when do you do that? <laughs> what's national importance? Yeah. <laughs> and that was that hypothetically, you might wait as long as you possibly can before you tell DC that you have this case brewing. But um, we told DC at some point in advance, but deep, deep, deep into our investigation. And in fact, almost eighth to the inning, point, ninth inning. Eighth inning, ninth inning. And you deemed it to be of national importance. Oh, we knew this would be huge. Okay. 
We got so if there's a case of national importance, you yep. have to I'm let sorry. you have to let the deputy AG know. Yes. Is it permission? No. No, it is not. What you are doing is um, you're just giving them a heads up. You may then get a phone call, and I got several, but it's just a heads up. You do not need permission. Now they, you know, obviously can the AG, I suppose, can say stand down on this case. Oh, sure, a absolutely. Um, that has happened within the department. It's it's fairly infrequent. What, what it really have you is ever for, had that experience? Um, no, I have not. But what it's really for is not for Washington to say no, but for Washington to prepare for the questions they're going to get. No but one they likes could, but, surprises. But they could say no, right? I mean, yeah, they no, absolutely they, they, could say they, no. They could say no, or they could, or more likely, they could um, sort of impose their input, right? So, you know, I've had conversations with attorney generals about my cases over the years. A deputy AG or, or No, with AG. the attorney general. And as I think something you'll probably sympathize with. Um, having been an employee and having been a leader, is when you are speaking to the attorney general, what you're dreading is the attorney general making some offhand remark, which really in, in, in substance is an order, right? So if I'm talking to the attorney general about a case, and the attorney general says, oh, wow, no, I can't see doing that. Why would we do that? Then boom, I can't do that. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just an offhand remark in the conversation, but then afterward, I can't go off and do the opposite of whatever it is the AG observed during that phone call. And so it's always a little fraught having those conversations because you know how you want to do the case, right? But now you're on the phone with somebody who has the power by just saying X or Y to drastically alter how you pursue that case. So it's- um, And it's presumably on this with. case of national importance, the deputy AG would consult the AG to make sure they're Absolutely. all lined up. Yeah. Yeah. And Varsity Blues, uh, until-, think, until I, I would bet this is one of the cases that made it to the AG. Absolutely. Yeah. We knew this was going to be a, a very big case. Do you think it would have made it to President Trump? That's a really good question. I don't know the answer would, to that. I would that. be not surprised if it did, it, it, actually. It, it, it is like right at the heart of middle America. Yeah. I mean, I used to say to people, if you want to know if a case is big news, forget the New York Times or forget yeah. CNN, right? Look for the cover of People magazine. Mm -hmm. If you're on the cover of People, not me, if the case is on the cover of People magazine, you have hit a cultural nerve. You are reaching millions of Americans standing in their supermarket checkout lines if you're on the cover of People magazine. Um, and, and I think this case was on the cover of People magazine three yeah, or but four I times. I would, for, for, it's for that reason that I'm not surprised if this would have gone yeah, to the no, White I, House. Right, I'm, I mean, honestly, if I, I'm, know, I'm, I'm running to be president. I'd want to know about it. Yeah, there's nothing I'd esoteric about, about this. I'd this, want to know is, about that. This is a, a rite of passage for millions of American kids every year. And, and would you consider it a legitimate use of executive authority? Let's play that out. Comes up the chain to the presidency and I say something like, we're not going to interfere with that, but take anybody who the public could perceive legitimately as an either innocent bystander or even victim and make sure we go hard at everybody who's an obvious perpetrator, but take, mm -hmm. take the parents off. Yeah, I, I think that. I mean, that's the way the system works, right? If, I mean, that's the way the executive branch works. Is, would that be an abuse of prosecutorial discretion? No, I don't think so. No, or or an abuse of executive authority? I don't think so. I mean, no, I no, 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 no. Reporting no. to the executive it, branch for a reason. Well, it, it's not an abuse of, of of executive authority. I mean, what you run into there is a slightly different question, which is just how much or how little should the White House be saying to the Attorney General about who to prosecute or not?
Yeah. It would not be improper. Uh, DOJ and the White House, um, they're very controlled in the communications between the two, or at least they're supposed to be. And it would not be improper for the between White the, House to Between even the AG and the US president. Between even yeah. the AG and the US president. Yeah, exactly. So I'll give you a perfect example. Back in the Bush administration, we were involved in uh, litigation over affirmative action back in those days. There was yep. a, there were the Grutter Supreme Court decision yep, came out in the 2000s. So that was uh, a Michigan case, right? Michigan yeah. case, tremendous debate within the Justice Department. I was in the Civil Rights Division at that time. What do we do? What do we say? What position do we take, right? The White House counsel at that time, Al Gonzalez, a, a, a good guy, had a lot of input on that subject. Now, that's the White House talking to DOJ, but this is an issue that goes right to the heart in America. People have opinions on this, voters have opinions on this. It affects Americans in many walks of life. What the department is going to argue in court about affirmative action, yeah, the executive has a view on that and the executive is entitled to express it to the AG and the uh, Solicitor General in that instance. So yeah, that happens from time to time. And I think that there's, you know, even when you think about the propriety of you know, chief executive presidential influence on this. I think that there's a difference between saying less or, or to understand a case whose genesis came through the normal channels yes. of generating an investigation and then to exercise discretion in constraining that scope versus a top-down affirmative mandate to say that this is the target yeah, we the, need to the, actually pursue. The second pursue. would be extremely problematic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully we you know, never live in that country. Um, the former is fine. The it, latter it's, is it's, it's, it's not legally prohibited. Or is it that is, I mean, it's it constitutionally is not, up for debate? Even, even the nature of that, that, no, that that's a norm, right? Is it what is you said. a norm. Yeah. That's yeah. well, it's a norm. It is not legally prohibited. It is not a constitutional problem. I mean, the AG is a member of the cabinet, works at the pleasure of the president. The president wants to say, you really should be looking into X. There's no constitutional impediment to doing that. And the AG, one of the difficulties of being the attorney general is you have to have both the fortitude to resist when resistance is needed, but also have the judgment to discern one from the other, right? Mm -hmm. So if the White House calls and says, hey, this looks like a huge problem. Can you look into that? It shouldn't be a reflexive no. You should take that for what it is. Treat it as any one of a number of inputs that come into the department when it decides who to go after. Treat it that way. Not as more, but not as less. That's one of the hard things about being the attorney general. And I think, I think you think about it, there's a beauty to that too. I mean, the criminal justice system is still backstopped, at least on the prosecutorial side, by some backstop of democratic accountability to the people. So it's not necessarily a corruption of the system. There's, it's, no, it's, it's part not of what a makes corruption. It, but you, it's you, part of what actually builds trust in it. But there's a, there's a sense in which none of us want that justice system well, to can, be politicized in you the can literal see sense the risks. either. We recently saw the risk. Yeah, look, at the school, look at the school boards, mm -hmm. right? So Merrick Garland is attorney general and Merrick, super smart guy and a guy who wants to do right. He's put in as attorney general. His first substantial issuance to the field mm -hmm. is this memorandum about school board meetings, about yeah. parents at school board meetings. It turns out we find out afterward that there was a letter to the White House. The White House, I think, undoubtedly had contact with the Attorney General, and, and he proceeded. Reasonable people will differ on whether he was proportional in, in his response or not, but you see the risk there. That generated a tremendous amount of distrust, because now the view of a significant segment of the public is that Merrick Garland and the FBI is coming after parents at school board meetings because someone petitioned the White House. Not a good look, right? So maybe they stumbled there, maybe they didn't, but it, it highlights the risk that you are identifying when you have the White House talking to 
uh, DOJ. It would be, I think it would be malpractice in this conversation not to touch on, you know, the issue hanging over the cloud of the country. You could say right now, as we're having this conversation, we're recording this on, you know, whatever date today is Friday in late March. The day today, 23rd, 24th? Friday, March, 24th. March, you know, <laughs> March 24th right now. We'll release this in, in due course. But as of right now, there's this question now to go from the federal government to, to the state government with Alvin Bragg sure. in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And sure. unlike the U.S. Attorney General, you have many state and district attorney generals who are mm-hmm. elected, right? And a unique yes. thing about this situation, I'd love to get your take on this, is that Alvin Bragg made a campaign promise. His campaign promise was to investigate and potentially in a way that leads to the indictment of yes. Donald Trump. We don't know whether he's going to follow through with that. It is the subject of wild speculation and interest now as we have this conversation. I've been very public, though it would be politically convenient for me if Donald Trump were in this, were not in this race. I don't care about that. I, I think it feels fundamentally un-American and wrong for a prosecutor here to carry out what is really a fundamentally, in my opinion, politically motivated vendetta. Yeah. But here's the evidence of it. It was a campaign promise, right? So, so leave even the Democrat versus Republican stuff about this to one side. I've talked about that elsewhere. But how are we supposed to feel about elected district attorneys or this attorneys is, general this carrying is a great out campaign issue. promises? Yeah. I, I think I, I've, I've written on this uh, in the past. And I, um, the short answer to your question, and then I'll, then I'll back up some. The short answer to your question is my personal view is that uh, district attorneys should never be elected. Prosecutors should not be elected. You have too much power. Good. Prosecution is often a counter-majoritarian function, meaning there, you, you, there are cases that you will bring even though they are unpopular. Yep. And the bigger risk, there are cases you won't bring, even though they would be popular. And so I don't, I don't think I'm really giving anything away here, but I remember vividly interviewing to be the United States attorney in Boston. And one of the things you do is you interview with the attorney general. And I go to DC and I sit down with Jeff Sessions. And one of the, he hands me a Diet Coke and he says, Andy, do you think prosecutors should be elected or appointed? And I had a view on this. I've been a prosecutor a long time. I begin to express a view. He just cuts me off and starts, you know, ranting about, ranting's a little strong, um, speaking passionately about how prosecutors should never be elected. They should always be appointed for precisely the reason that you described. I see the counter argument. You want prosecutors to be pursuing what are the utmost law enforcement concerns of the community. Okay, I get that. But there are tremendous risks, like you're highlighting in having prosecutors elected because it will affect their prosecutorial And just can I get your opinion just as a human being and as a citizen? I mean, as we sit here today, pending knowledge of whether or not Trump will be indicted by Alvin Bragg, on the facts as we have them, do you believe that is a politically motivated and unjust prosecution? Or do you think that he is approaching this with the clear-eyed vision of somebody who is actually effectuating justice. This is an issue I've thought about a lot in the wake of Varsity Blues. My personal view, I don't know the man, is that he's either motivated by politics and or by fame, by glory. Both can affect prosecutorial decision making, meaning either it is a partisan political episode for him, or it could be merely that he wants to be in featured articles in the New York Times and he wants to be made famous off this case. Both of those things can happen. One of the things you look at is if no one had ever heard of Donald Trump 
would that office still be vigorously pursuing the case? I mean, even if they hadn't campaigned on pursuing it, would they be vigorously but pursuing put that, it? But that, that, put that aside. Put even that aside. Even the politics, using right? just the fame piece put, of this. Fair enough, fair put, enough. Put that aside. So in Varsity Blues, you thought about this a lot. I, you know, and I, I would think to myself, sitting in my office, literally, am I prosecuting Felicity Huffman because we should do that? Or am I prosecuting Felicity Huffman so that someone will say Andy Lulling prosecuted Felicity Huffman? And it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's You're human. The, You're a human, human being. We all have it egos. It is part Hubris. of the discipline of that job. And the, the, the elected portion of it has got to make it even harder. Oh, yeah. Exacerbates now, that. Now well, here's, your, here's your, something, your here's, future depends so on So this may be the last question. I mean, we have uh, this, this hour has flown by. Um, we didn't even get to fentanyl, which yeah. is what we were supposed to talk about. So if you're open <laughs> to time. it, we will do, let, let, let's do it next time because I can tell we can go deep on we'll this. do it next time. But I'll close with this one for you is – so you talked about being elected and being put in that position, but that's actually on the retrospective because you were at least elected before you got into that position. How do you feel about this? There's a lot of discussion you know, in my circles, in policy circles, et cetera, about whether, for example, elected officials should have a cooling off period from lobbying the government. I'm actually quite favorably disposed to this. But put that to one side, I'll ask a different question about it from a prosecutor perspective. So let's say you're in a situation where the prosecutors aren't elected. Should there also be a cooling off period before prosecutors are, at, are allowed to run for elected office afterwards too? Because that's really at least one better deterrent on cashing in that's an on the same factor. That's an interesting question. I haven't thought about that. I, I am overall, I'm a fan of cooling off periods. The law has a bunch of them built in. So this for, one isn't though. This I think. one, this yeah. one, this in fact, one many is people not. jump straight from prosecutor to elected office you almost can. in a way. And people and Republicans do. do it, Democrats do it. I was I was uh, considering running for governor of Massachusetts, coming off the platform of being the U.S. Attorney in Massachusetts. There but is since you opened up so first personally, there you said you looked yourself in the mirror, right? I love. Thank you for being vulnerable. I appreciate that. Just seeing that isn't it? It feels to me like the system working like it is where you can't go off of that and just run for governor of Massachusetts on the back of prosecuting Felicity Huffman. Yeah, there is, a, there is an argument that if you could do that, that also would influence your decisions you know, as a prosecutor. So the law strikes these balances. And you didn't though. Why didn't you run for governor? Oh my gosh. You'd have been a compelling, you'd have, you'd have, you'd have, you, you had the fame. You there's had the, a, uh, there's the momentum. A, uh, well, there's a 10% Republican re uh, Registration base. Yeah, in yeah of course, of course. Now, Massachusetts is a complicated <laughs> equation. Occasionally, you do get some Republicans. It's very, it's that come very out. complicated. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, thanks for having, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Sure, I mean, we'll, of course. We'll pick up where we left off and start on fentanyl next time around. But this yeah, was happy to do it. It's a great conversation. I'm Vivek Ramaswamy, candidate for president, and I approve this message. Paid for by Vivek 2024.